0: All right, our text, First Peter chapter 3, verses 18-22. through 22, Follow along as I read. The text says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of, god, of a god of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. This is God's Word. Uh, I didn't give you the the note sheet. I have them right here. I'm sorry. I thought I put them in the back. I guess I was distracted by the muffins. Uh, Anyone want these? Uh, Oh, thank you. All right. So raise your eyebrows if you want a note sheet. Yeah, a little different. Change things up. So Peter is talking about Christ. He's the focus of verses 18 through 22, right? For Christ also suffered And then verse 22, he's still talking about Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. talking about Christ, and uh, it begins with the word for, verse 18. For, because he's supporting the thought previously stated that in verse 15, we should sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. We should set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We should treasure Him above all, love Him, admire Him, worship Him, bow before Him. Uh, give him all of your worship, not part of it, but all of it. Let him be at the pinnacle of your heart. And now he's helping us to do that in verses 18 through 22. The reason why we need to do this, the the immediate context, is in the context of suffering, right, persecution. Uh, We are called to serve uh, the Lord and to be obedient to him. And sometimes it involves hard things, like, like wives being in marriages where the husband is unbelieving and it's hard for her. And so he's, this is encouragement for uh, uh, women in that situation. Uh, it's encouragement for those in the workplace that have unbelieving uh, bosses. And yet there's, and the, those Christians are called to be uh, obedient, to be humble, and to even be willing to accept persecution. But he says, Peter says the only way you can do that is by setting Christ apart as Lord in your hearts uh, and, and worshiping Him. But it's, it's one thing to say that, and, and we all hear that. Yes, we need to do that. We need to do that. Christ needs to be at the pinnacle of my heart, and we agree, and we, and we uh, say amen and close our Bibles and walk out the door. But have we done it yet? <laughs> we all agree we need to, but sometimes we don't go that next step and actually do it. Well, Peter uh, is, in God's providence, is so kind to, to help us to actually do that. Uh, and so this is the third week we're looking at verses 18 through 22, and we're looking at these four events in the life of Christ uh, that we're supposed to appreciate that should lead us to hallow Christ. That's the word sanctify, right? Or to set apart as Lord. Uh, To hallow Christ and endure unjust suffering with hope. First, you hallow Christ as you appreciate his suffering and death. And verse 18, that's that line Jesus uh, suffered to bring you to God. And that bring you to God is that word for access. Christ's suffering was for the purpose of giving you access to God. And he did that by uh, suffering in a way that was substitutionary. He suffered instead of us. And that's why we have access to God. And then uh, Peter notes that it was uh, suffering that was once for all. Uh, His substitutionary suffering was complete and sufficient to gain you the favor of the king eternally. Forever you have access to God because... Jesus suffered in your place, and he did it once and for all. He doesn't have to keep doing it. You don't have to add anything to it. You just delight in Christ for doing it for you. And then the second activity that Peter points to, he says, "Hallow Christ, as you look at his proclamation to imprisoned spirits. And that was quite a study last time we went through this, right, three weeks ago. Uh, I wonder if you are well-versed in it enough to be able to walk someone else through this text. And I thought, it was kind of nice. I wanted to finish the whole text last time, but we weren't able to. But sometimes I think, man, the review is so important because this is one of those complicated texts. And it's an exciting text. Uh, I wish that we could t- take others through it. So let's kind of r- remind ourselves of those things. We'll look at the end of verse 18 and start there. Uh, he says that uh, uh, it was so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. And what I said was there, made alive, it's better translated as kept alive. He was put to death in the flesh, but kept alive in the Spirit. Now, people take different interpretations of this passage. Uh, What I'm giving you right now is the interpretation that was almost the, the, uh, well, I would say the consensus of uh, the first few hundred years of church history. All of those pastors and Bible teachers that we know, those church fathers we refer to them as, pretty much they all took this view that I'm giving you. And it's still the majority uh, view today uh, among Bible-believing teachers. Um, But I do see that there are uh, a number of them, and some of them are my heroes. (laughs) Uh, D. Edmund Hebert is one of them. He's with the Lord now, but he wrote a commentary. Paul uh, Tom Schreiner is one of one of my theological heroes. I don't agree with either one of those guys and everything, okay? But <laughs> I love them, and they're awesome. Uh, and but they don't agree with me on this interpretation of this text, and they both depart at this point on the tra- translation of "but made alive in the Spirit." They say that can't be; it's not kept alive; it's made alive, and they say you can't take that view; it doesn't fit with. It's not an Orthodox view of Christ that he was uh, dead spiritually and then was made alive spiritually. And I agree with that. But what I disagree with him on is that is the is how you can interpret this this word made alive can be translated as kept alive. And so I shared with you three weeks ago lexicons. That's those are Greek dictionaries that show that that give this as one of the definitions. And for some reason, those guys they don't even talk about it in their commentaries. And it really stinks. I want to go talk to those. I can't talk to the Edmund until I go to glory. Uh, but maybe someday I will. Uh, but I won't need to. We'll just have correct understandings, right? Whatever. Uh, but Thomas Schreiner, maybe I'll get the maybe I'll get the chance to talk to him at some point and ask him why can't it be translated as kept alive? What about what about BDAG, right? The the one of the probably the most famous Greek lexicon that everyone uses. And, uh, but then I actually showed you a couple examples from the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where this same word is translated as kept alive. So it can be that. It does have that meaning. Uh, and so I think that's what it is. And, that's, and that is, again, how the early church fathers, they all understood it this way as kept alive. So I'm not taking anything novel or new. and It's not like I'm in the minority. This is But those that reject it... Um, Do it not for all the other words and phrases that come in verse 20 or 19. If they depart from my understanding, they do it at this point. Um, So Christ, having been put to death in the flesh, was kept alive in the spirit. So he's put to death in the flesh, but spiritually he was kept alive. And uh, so, okay, he he was kept alive. And what did he do? What happened? Well, Peter describes what he did at that point. Uh, When he was alive spiritually, his body was in the grave, was in the tomb. And all of his followers were mourning. They were sad. But Jesus was not sad. (laughs) He was thinking he was alive. And he went somewhere. Uh, And that's the terminology that Peter uses in verse 19. That is, he says, in which... Uh, that is uh, in in the realm of the spirit, also he went he he traveled somewhere, he went somewhere and made proclamation to the spirits, which is a reference to angels to the made proclamation to the angels now in prison, so these aren 't good angels because good angels aren 't imprisoned, these are bad angels, these are demons. He made proclamation to the angels now imprisoned uh, so so these were imprisoned and they, he says, who once were disobedient. And once is sometimes translated as formerly. It refers to a point in time in the past. There was one point in time where they were disobedient. Now they're always disobedient. They're demons. They're not worshiping Christ. They're not living their existence in submission to him. But there was one particular disobedience that is notable, that is something that we would, Peter's readers would all know about. They were once they once were disobedient in some big way, and this at this time, it was when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And so Peter has in mind Genesis chapter six, uh, where Moses, when he writes Genesis 6, puts these events together. Uh, he has the uh, event in, of uh, the sons of God they refer to. It's a reference to these angelic beings, these demons, that cohabitated with women uh, and uh, they were trying to corrupt the, 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 the line of, uh, of from, from the seed of the woman to the Messiah. Because the promise was given, the seed of the woman, one that would come in the line of Eve, would one day crush the head of the serpent. Here's the Savior of the world coming through the line of Eve. And so these demons, apparently, were trying to thwart this purpose of God. And so they manifested themselves as flesh and cohabitated with these women. And, uh, but apparently it's not just uh, about the demons' disobedience and their rebellion against God, but also the, the people. Because Moses, as he writes Genesis 6, goes on to talk about how the sinfulness of humanity was so great. Uh, the evil in their heart is just being multiplied. And, uh, and so then you read, also in that same chapter, about the flood god says i regret making mankind like this and so he sends judgment across the whole earth uh and so he puts a stop to all of this disobedience that was happening he put a stop to those demons and their disobedience but also to all of humanity and their disobedience and they were all judged save eight right and that's what uh Peter is going to talk about it as he keeps going. So he says in verse 20, who once were disobedient, these demons, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Uh, so he moves quickly on to, uh, to Noah and the salvation that he and uh, the other seven experienced. But the point that Peter was making with these demons that were imprisoned is that Jesus being being put to death in the flesh kept alive spiritually he went to these demons who were imprisoned and he went to them and he Kerusod, he preached to them no it wasn't preaching the gospel like like we would preach the gospel from the pulpit and call people to repentance giving them the offer of the gospel uh, and asking or offering salvation not that kind it wasn't euangelion or you eu on Galizo. it wasn't preaching the good news which is sometimes, that Greek word is translated as preach sometimes, but that's a completely different word, and it has to do with preaching the good news so that people could repent and believe the gospel and be saved. He wasn't offering the gospel or offering salvation to these demons. He was keruso He was announcing a message to them. What was his message? His own victory obtained at the cross. He had just said, it is finished. And then he flies down to this abyss and he announces his victory. You who tried to thwart the promise of my father to send me into the world to save a sinful humanity. You failed. I've won. I've obtained victory. And he was bragging. Uh, And that's okay for him to do. It's not good for us to brag because we have nothing to brag about. We do brag. And so sometimes when we think of Jesus, we go down there just to boast in himself. Yeah, but he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so Peter uh, is saying to these suffering believers, (laughs) man, for one, things look kind of dismal for you, right? And you remember that time when, when our Savior was in the tomb and that was a sad day and it didn't look like great things were happening, But even while we were mourning, Jesus was boasting to these imprisoned spirits, announcing his victory. So don't just go by what you can see. You go by the truth, right? Our Savior, he has already obtained victory. He has already boasted. Well, don't you lose all your hope after he's already boasted in what he's accomplishing on your behalf. It's awesome. Well, then he goes on. So he's got in mind this great rebellion. Humanity seemingly going down the tubes. <laughs> and, then, and then he thinks, but Jesus' victory really has turned it around for everyone. And then he thinks of baptism. Amazingly enough, that his, his mind goes there. It's incredible. So we'll move on to the third point. Hallow Christ as you look at his resurrection, which guarantees your salvation. All right. So verse 20 He says uh, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of God. uh, I keep saying that wrong. But an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he speaks of Noah and seven other people. These eight people, he says, were saved through water. Uh, it's a different word for save. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the word sozo, which is the most common word for save, uh, most often refers, I think, to spiritual salvation. But he has this, little, this additional little word he attaches to it, um, dia. Uh, so it's saved through. Um, so it seems at first like Peter has this kind of confused that these eight people were saved, through the water, and we think, how was the water a saving agent? It seems as it was as though it were an agent of judgment. The water was it, Was the water really there to save those <laughs> Noah and his family? Wasn't it there really to judge humanity? Well, it was uh, both, right? It was an agent of judgment and an agent of salvation. And so when he thinks about that about how God saved Noah and saved all of humanity by giving salvation through judgment, he immediately thinks of, I think, two things. Jesus' resurrection, that's how he obtained, Jesus obtained salvation through judgment. Not around judgment, not judgment's not incidental to the salvation, he went through the judgment to get to the salvation. That's how all of us are saved. We get the salvation by going through the judgment. Your sin must be judged for you to be saved. If you take that judgment yourself, you'll perish. But if you are joined to Christ and his judgment, his death, right, he received the sentence of our sin, for our sin, he received it. If you're joined to him and your sins are judged in Christ, then you are saved by going through that judgment. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. Well, so Peter thinks about that water, saving agent for Noah and his family. They were saved out of a disobedient people. So Peter thinks of, uh, uh, of that water and uh, sees it as a reflection of the rite of baptism under the new covenant. So in verse 21, he says, corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you. Um, what similarity is there? Well, it's, it's both in that there is water. Uh, that's how there's the correspondence there. There's a correspondence in that there was salvation going on. And correspondence in, in this point that there was judgment. Um, So then uh, Peter defines baptism in the middle of the sentence. He, uses, he has two phrases that describe what baptism is and what it is not. Baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body or from the flesh. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And there's actually two nouns that are used in apposition. Used to, are you familiar with appositional phrases or words they are nouns that rename other nouns so the two nouns are removal and appeal so baptism you can't rename that it's not the same thing as a removal but it is the same thing as an appeal so baptism when a person is baptized he's making an appeal now a lot of people get wet but they're not making an appeal and it's not baptism. If you're a little baby, if you're an infant, and someone puts water on you, if they sprinkle you with water, or if they pour the water on you, or if they dunk you into the water, I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube videos. Yowza. They're not making an appeal. Peter's gonna say, nope, that ain't baptism. Baptism is an appeal. You have to be making an appeal, and it's relational. You're not just crying out, I need something. Who am I talking to? I don't know who I'm talking to. I just need help. No. You're not talking to other people. You are communicating something to God. You are expressing something to God. You're making an appeal to God. Clean my conscience. Cleanse me. That's what baptism is in Peter's mind. Uh, So, which explains why in Acts 2, 38, after uh, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, all these people say, Peter, what shall we do? Right? They're cut to the heart, Luke records. What do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized toward the forgiveness of sins. You want the forgiveness of sins? Repent, turn from your sin, turn from trust in self, Part of that turning is turning away from trust in self is turning to faith in God, right? Reliance on Him. Trust or return, I mean, repent and be baptized. You go, whoa, Peter, ah, oh, messed up, dude. You can't confuse baptism with salvation. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? He would say, no, I'm not confused. I'm an apostle. I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I just told you what it takes to have forgiveness of sins. You've got to repent and you've got to be baptized. Peter, what what does this mean? Why why do we have to be baptized? Well, when he thinks of baptism, he's not talking about a work that earns you anything. The whole point of baptism, he would say, is you're expressing to God, I can't do anything. There are no works that I have to add to this. I ask you to do everything. Cleanse me. So, Baptism saves, Peter says. That's bold, right? It saves, but not as a good work, not earning something. It saves insofar as it is an expression of faith in God. Insofar as it is a rejection of self and trust in self and good works and everything else and a total trust in God. Can someone be saved without baptism? I think so. I think there's, there's examples in Acts where people were saved. Uh, and they had not yet been baptized. Uh, and Peter says, you know, he goes and sees these people have been saved, and, uh, and then he decides to baptize them, and then he goes, and they're Gentiles, right? But then he goes back to the apostles, and you can tell in that discussion, the way Peter's talking, that the apostles are probably a little bit bothered. What do you baptize these guys for? They're Gentiles! You know, we like Jews, right? They had a hard time with that, and he's like, "Well, who was I to to keep them from receiving the blessings that we have, because they received the Spirit just as we had?" So if they're saved, so he saw that they were saved, and that was before they were baptized. So Peter saw that. So, but generally speaking, when we think of baptism, we ought not look for those kind of strange exceptions. That is a strange exception that Peter saw. I mean, they were speaking in tongues, right? Cornelius and his household in Acts 10 and Acts 11. They had received the Spirit beforehand. But generally speaking, baptism, when we think of baptism, we should think of it as receiving the gospel and expressing faith unto salvation. It's not, baptism doesn't save. And in fact, actually, that's the significance of that line. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh don't don't have this mechanical view of baptism it's God who saves not baptism but baptism is an expression of faith similar to prayer does prayer save does prayer save it's a trick question right you'd say yeah prayer saves but no it doesn't save. God saves but he does that in response to our faith faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of God and his salvation but this instrument has a way of expressing itself. This faith expresses itself through speaking. And so Paul says in Romans ten nine, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So a person has to confess with their mouth? I mean, I hate to bring up the scenario, but some people don't have mouths. Now, it's a crazy scenario, isn't it? But it's true. It's true. What if they can't talk? What if they're, they're not able to communicate through their mouth? He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I mean, are they beyond salvation? Of course not, right? That's not the point. Generally speaking, we have our faith is, is uh, the instrument of salvation, right? We're saved by faith alone. Through grace alone right uh, but how does God want us to express that faith he wants us to confess it he wants us to use our lips and say it generally that's what we do right he also wants us to be baptized his will is not for us to have faith in him for salvation and then to confess him ten years later that doesn't even make any sense also He doesn't want us to to have faith in him for salvation and then to be baptized 10 years later. What about three years later? What about two years later? Generally, this is the way it is. We confess him immediately with our lips. And that is when we're saved and be baptized. Now, of course, Peter says this, baptism now saves you. And he even gives this example. We know what it looks like for him to actually preach it to lost people. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Um, But you know what? I think the way that those people would receive that is different than how people would receive it today. There's a lot more confusion, I think, around baptism than there was in Peter's day. Uh, Here, now you have Roman Catholics who who will tell you that baptism is actually saving. Right? It's very common... Heresy, that's taught. False teaching, contrary to the gospel. Mormons teach this, right? Many teach this. If it says at eight days old, why do they do the rest of the stuff? Yeah. Why right. Do they have, why do they have confession? Why do they have the sacraments? Why do they have... Yeah. That's right. So, so, yeah, so that's false teaching. So uh, when we say, if we were to repeat... Peter's words verbatim. Uh, I think that's inappropriate. Now, that that sounds a little scary, right? But it's inappropriate because people won't hear it the same way Peter's audience heard it. He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you're talking to a Roman Catholic, don't tell them that. You can say, this is what Peter said, but what did he think about baptism? You've got to give some background. You've got to explain the theological context, and the context we have is the New Testament, Right? You've got to show Roman Catholics how uh, baptism as a work does not save, and they should not interpret Peter's comment about being baptized as doing a work to merit grace, right, which is the terminology that Roman Catholics use. Meriting grace, which doesn't even make any sense. How do you merit what is unmerited, right? But, they, but that's, what they, that's what they say, so it's confusing. So we should, I think, embrace Peter's view of baptism because it's Biblical and we should urge people, do you, do you believe in Christ? Then you should be baptized. And we should urge them to do this. But let's make sure you understand what baptism is. Have you, what, what do you think about baptism? What do you know about that? Where have you seen it? Right? They might say, oh, I've already been baptized. Oh, well, that stinks. You haven't been baptized because you haven't been saved before. right? So it hasn't been a real baptism. So it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay, so now we're mixing this with water and Noah and all this, right? When you were saved, when, when you were uh, justified, when you were saved, it was through death, through judgment. When uh, the New Testament world thought of water, it was a scary thing for them. They always wrote about water as being scary. And being submerged in water was always, it was like a way of referring to death. When they thought of baptism, that was one of the primary thoughts that all of the the audience of the New Testament had, death. We don't really associate death with baptism that much. Um, I don't know what we think of it as. We think of it as a rite, uh, a ceremony. Uh, As Christians, we should associate associate with baptism death and also new life. It it pictures our union with Christ, right? Like Paul talks about in Romans 6. We've been united together with Christ, buried together with Christ. So we died together with Christ and we're raised to walk in newness of life, which is that passage we oftentimes quote when there is a baptism, right? Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, So you were saved through judgment. So it used to be that when a person was hanged for a crime, I mean a couple hundred years ago, he'd be hanged for a crime And uh, he owed people a bunch of money, maybe, because he had stole from them. Too much to pay. So he was sentenced to death, sentenced to a hanging. And after he'd be hanged, then they would post around town and at the gallows in the middle of town. uh, You know, Sam, I was going to say Sam Rutherford, but he's a Puritan, and I don't want to drag his name through the mud. Uh, I can't think of any other name right now. George Stephanopoulos. Stephanopoulos. (laughs) We've got to pick somebody. John Hutt. John Hutt. <laughs> See, I have to think of names. Never. Okay, that's whatever. So John Hutt. It, was, it would post it saying John Hutt was justified. You know, December 29th, 1582. It was justified. What does that mean? That means that he had died. By being hanged. And that's his justification. And what, what they're saying is, he's now, in terms of the law, he's good in terms of the law. All of his, uh, his uh, sentence of judgment has been paid in full. He owes nothing to the government, nothing to the law, nothing to any other man. Paid in full by his death. You say, well, that's great for him. Except that he's dead, you know. <laughs> if only you could, you could say, great for him because he's paid in full but then he can still be alive. Well, that's what we're going for when we, when we reach out to Christ in salvation. I would like to be dead, to know that I have paid the penalty for all of my crimes, but then to still have life. So the key is to believe into Christ, to be united together with him, to be buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. So as you believe in Christ, His death on Calvary, accepting the wrath of God, the judgment of God for sin, His death becomes your death. and You have died in Christ. And Paul says in Romans 6, you need to reckon this to be true. say, well, I I don't remember it. I don't feel it. It doesn't matter if you feel it. Don't go by your feelings. You count on this to be true. You reckon it to be true. Uh, You have died together with Christ, and you have been given new life in Him. You've been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. So so Peter, that's how he thinks of baptism, is being united together with Christ so that you're buried together with Him and you're raised together with Him. And baptism pictures this. And he thinks about Noah. And Noah was saved. It was salvation through judgment. And he thinks this is our salvation. We're saved through judgment by our union with Christ. And now all that's pictured in baptism. So when a person's baptized next time, they go down in the water, think, he really died. The old George is dead. And in Christ, he has new life. His debts are paid in full with that death. And it's Christ's death, which is counted to him. And he's raised with a new righteousness that's imputed to him. So, salvation through judgment. Uh, the only way to have new life is to have that death. So join yourself to Christ, united together with Christ, believe into him, and uh, his death counts as yours. And so Peter, when he thinks about salvation through judgment, he thinks of Jesus' resurrection, which is that new life, uh, which is pictured in baptism. And so that's what gives us hope And we say, I want to know, God, please give me a good conscience. Well, how can God just cleanse you? Well, he can do that because you're united together with Christ. All of your sin has been accounted for been dealt with in Christ, and you have new life. So, so we make an appeal to Him. Uh, okay, point number four. Hallow Christ as you look at His exaltation to the right hand of God. Hallow Christ as you look at His exaltation to the right hand of God. So verse 22 says who, about Christ, He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. So Jesus had prayed to the Father before His crucifixion. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, be with Me where I am, so that they may see My glory which You have given Me, for You love Me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus prayed that we would see His glory. Uh, the particular glory that He wanted us to see was His exaltation to the Father's right hand. Um, You think of an eclipse, a total eclipse of the sun. It doesn't reduce even slightly the natural beauty or the natural light or the glory of the sun, right? But from our perspective on earth, the sun looks dark. It looks inglorious, right? There's no glory. We don't see any of the brilliant glory of the sun. It's inglorious. Um, But when it moves out from behind the moon, we can once again see its natural light and glory. And so Jesus' prayer, John 17, before his death, his prayer was for the eclipse to be over. Up to this point, the glory of Christ had been veiled. He had taken the form of a servant, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so he was praying that, he would see his, that we would see his glory. And now we do see his glory because He is at the Father's right hand, and He is reigning, and He is building His church. And that's how we see His glory now. It's through the church as He redeems people and gathers a people, and then shows His glory in our fellowship, in our singing, in our study of Scripture, uh, in our spiritual growth as we use the gifts to build up one another. He displays His glory. Um, And so Peter says to us, Hallow Christ as Lord in your hearts. Look at Him. He is exalted over all. All of his enemies are put under his feet. He's surrounded by glory and majesty and power. He's enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high, resting his feet on all his enemies. This is Jesus who is, in this world, was, was poor and despised and persecuted and slain for your sake. But this is Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us and washed us with his blood, and now he's reigning. And so he's reminding the believers again as they're enduring persecution and suffering. You have to have eyes of faith to see that Christ is at the Father's right hand, and he's dwelling in glory. He's the sovereign Lord over all. And be reassured by that. And so, I think, how does this encourage them? Another way, you know, you think about Christ and how he was suffering, things look dismal, but now there's victory. You're suffering, things look dismal, things look hard, but hold on. It's not always what they seem, what it looks like. Uh, in the end, there's victory. But of course, they're also reminded that the ones that come to them and insult them, mistreat them even those christian slaves that are wrongly beaten they know that their persecutors are not sovereign those persecutors have not been exalted they're not the father's right hand they are pawns their savior who loved them and suffered for them is at the father's right hand ruling and reigning over all things for their good and so when trials come to them, they can receive those trials, knowing that they are actually permitted and used, chosen carefully, wisely by their Savior to do good to them uh, and to exalt God in their lives. And that's ultimately our confidence, right? Yeah, it could get scary. Persecution could ramp up. But Jesus is the Lord overall. He's not waiting to find out what will happen. He is in charge. And his plan is for there to be persecution. But his plan is to allow that persecution to be a servant for our good. And we truly are blessed. So this confidence in God, understanding the victory that Christ has obtained, is what enables us to endure that kind of suffering. Questions or comments? That was uh, quite a bit, wasn't it? baptism questions comments um. you can ask me later if you've got questions or comments in case it takes a long time for you to get it out can just it now? Hmm. any other comments or questions besides that one. I've never heard that. I mean, kind of, but you spent the whole passage on talking about baptism. I don't know. I've never, I don't feel like I've heard it before. Like, I've heard it since I've heard teaching by you, but you haven't. I can't remember a time when you've spoken about baptism in depth to explain it that fully and extensively. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a lot of deception too around that because there are so many groups of Christians that practice it with baptism that will just say, in the plain reading of the text, you are depriving a child of salvation if you don't baptize them, because 1 Peter 3.21 says this. And what they're doing is like they're basically taking that verse out of context of the rest of the scripture. It's just like, well, it's the plain reading of the text. I'm like, well, what about the plain reading of the text that says we have to be United with Christ in the likeness of His death, um, and that doesn't just happen by pouring water on baby's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've talked with infant baptizers about this text, and yeah, they they are a little. They're no one likes. They don't like to talk about this text, um, and in, in some of the discussions that's been, Mom, have to go and research this more. Um, they don't like the, usually they don't like the baptism now saves you. Because they're like, yeah, we don't believe it saves you. They're, they're fuzzy on that. They like that. I mean, they don't want to compromise the gospel and say that baptism saves, right? If you're talking to like a Presbyterian, right? PCA or Orthodox Presbyterian, OPC. Uh, so they don't really want to say that. So they're like, well, I mean, there's this implicit faith, right? <laughs> they're just stumbling through it, right? But they especially don't like the fact that it says that Peter puts an apposition. I I hate to use the grammatical term, but it's significant because he's renaming baptism as an appeal to God. If if you're not appealing to God, it is not baptism. So people will say, well, should I be baptized? I was baptized as an infant. And I will say, no, you weren't. That's impossible. You cannot appeal to God for good conscience. Now, Martin Luther, of course, said that God would supernaturally allow infants to have faith, because He recognized that you had to have baptism had to be an expression of faith, had to be an appeal to God, right? But no, I don't know of anyone who's followed Him in that. <laughs> um, Internet Lutherans do. Yeah. They, like those people are like, yeah, you can't you can't prove that an infant can't have faith. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, but there's no major uh, stream of Lutherans. Maybe stream of Lutherans is not the right word to use, but uh, maybe just a little sprinkling of them. Uh, there's no major stream of Lutherans that have embraced that view. They've said, they're kind of embarrassed by it. No, there's no, there's no faith that an infant has. Um, and so they don't want to associate it with salvation. But Luther did see it associated with salvation largely because of this text. Not only this text, but... It was a big part of it um, so anyway all right let's pray Lord thank you for our time together in your word uh, Lord it's uh, texts like these that remind us uh, how much we need the help of your Holy Spirit to rightly divide your word and I pray that you'd help us to be very careful with your word um, give us humility as we study give us diligent hearts Um, and I pray that you'd help us also as we, as we, uh, end up talking with others about this text Uh, help us to be clear, help us to be humble about what we don't know. Um, I pray that we would, that you would equip us and strengthen us, empower us to, to speak clearly, uh, about baptism and to be scriptural and it is your will, Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, you commissioned us to go and make disciples, baptizing them. Uh, you want us to make disciples, and that discipleship begins with baptism. So help us, Lord, to be able to explain this to others and to be faithful to carry out that mission. Um, and Lord, there are so many that are perishing because they are, they've embraced a false gospel that, that sees baptism as a work, that is part of the way that they merit your favor, which, Father, dishonors your son. Uh, because we need him, and he did everything. He suffered once for all. There's nothing to add to it. And so help us, Lord, to be able to defend the truth, to explain it to others, and then plead with them to be reconciled to you. Um, And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to look at your son today, this week, and not just to agree with the truth about him that we know, not just to recall it to mind, but truly to admire him and to spend time with him, enjoying him, enjoying rest in him, knowing the the comfort, uh, enjoying that comfort, as we sit with Him uh, and talk to Him about who He is and what He's accomplished for us and how He loves us and how He still intercedes on our behalf and how He, even now, is uh, ordering everything for our good. Help us, Lord, to hallow Christ as Lord of all. And I pray this for His glory. I pray it in His name. Amen.